We all have monsters in our lives. Fears that slow us down and sometimes completely derail us. Fear of failure, fear of not being smart enough, fear of not being accepted and valued, or fear that our imperfections define us as unworthy. These ideas infect our personal and professional lives. They stop us from growing and from achieving. Overcoming our fears and leading others are similar in some ways. They both require us to view ourselves with honesty and to view others with empathy and respect. We have to see the beauty in a monster. That's when you build the confidence that's needed to face the normal risks associated with learning and success. So don't fear the challenges and imperfections, whether in yourself or in others. It's time to stop denying, avoiding, or denigrating them. It's time to start dancing with monsters. It's a great pleasure to welcome the author of those words and the focus of today's show, his book, Dancing with Monsters, Dr. Todd Dewitt. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Great to see you. Todd, one of my practices on this show is to wear a pin. I, I carefully select a pin for each episode to try and reflect. And I, I couldn't find a mummy or a werewolf, but I had this little pin of death walking around. And I was like, kind of going, it's kind of a monster. So it will do the job. It's great, strangely. I'm sure we've intrigued our audience a little bit here because Todd is an expert in innovation. He's a thought leader in innovation. He's a keynote speaker. He's a professor in college. Very much a portfolio career all around the theme of innovation and leadership within innovation. So he's written this book that's a beautiful read. And actually, Todd, I have to share it to you. I thought it would be a brilliant read for my children as well. I thought it's that simple to read to them, particularly the monster story. So it's one of these books in the realm of like, you know, iceberg, my iceberg is melting and those type of kind of fables. And I, I just highly recommend people reading it and you'll read it quickly. So you won't be under stress. It won't be on that massive pile on the bed case, on the bedside locker. Well, let's start. Firstly, maybe you give some context to the book, why you wrote it, why you felt you needed to write it, particularly in the realm of innovation. Well, uh, thanks again for having me. Great topics. I, I love uh, having a chance to muse about them. Where did the book come from? Well, um, leadership, creativity, innovation, change, these related ideas, <coughs> excuse me, have been my focus for a long time. And in the back of my head, I'd always wanted to do a fable, much like the one you mentioned, um, never felt the, the passion. And then, and this is really important to share, the book really came from failure, which is a theme in the book and a theme from courses I've made and things I've said over the years. It's a, it's a recurring theme because we're human and we all fail, usually a lot. Um, I wrote a novel, my third novel and my final, final novel because I'm not good at writing novels. I am now, at 52 years of age, honest enough, brave enough to say I am not good at writing novels and I'm no longer going to try. The last one that I wrote and then shelved like the other ones uh, did star a, a vampire character in an office situation. And that little nugget stuck with me and that I remembered the old love I had in the back of my head about fables. And I got excited thinking about a new format that might make this idea breathe better. And I just got some coffee in me and sat down and six hours later, the first draft was done. That's how fast it happened. This short little book. Yeah. Man, I love the way you gathered some assets from the ashes of those previous previous novels, and and that's how innovation works as well. We we try something, we 
see did it work did it not and we gather what's useful from its previous incarnation and go again so i didn't know that about the book so that makes it even more special so let's start with the opening tale so i'll tell you i'll, I'll let you do the talking about here to give context about how it works maria noah and the toxic team that noah is presented with to take over and of course the jerk that is miles I mean, the book is so succinct. I think you just nailed it. We've got a couple uh, enjoying some coffee shop time and talking, and uh, Noah lets it be known he's been offered uh, an opportunity, and and he'd been sitting on it. He wasn't sure what to do about it because of this bully person that you mentioned, uh, who they both know and and don't enjoy. He could see clear uh, pros, clear cons to taking on this opportunity. Um and then she, Maria, was kind of reminded of an old professor who had them read a little tale that she thought might be useful in this situation. And from there, we just jump into this tale of a few misfit monsters. And Todd, one of the things I wanted to just point out was may maybe let's extend a little bit the story about Noah. And because of the opening I gave about fear and his fear of taking this role, because many people experience that. They're offered this opportunity. And usually what comes to mind is not, let's jump at it. It's all the reasons why you shouldn't jump at it. It's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I think I've seen uh, a split where a lot of people are over eager many times to take those roles because of the prestige, the power, the pay, and they don't know what they're doing. This gave me a career for a long time. They don't know what they're doing because being a leader, of course, is a very different skill set than actually being functionally competent enough to be uh, identified as a person who might want to grow into leadership. They're very different skill sets. Uh, and then there, there is the other group, which I think maybe is half of the folks and and. Uh, they're scared, just like you said. They are scared of the extra work. They're scared of trying to to develop others, some of whom they see as wonderfully different or imperfect. Uh, they're scared about being viewed and judged by a new level of people above them. They're scared, wondering if they've got what it takes. Being you know offered something is wonderful, but then you start to think more deeply about the details, the responsibilities, the duties, and you say to yourself, "How many of those have I actually done? How many of those have I actually done well?" Wow, they're asking they want me to lead change. They want me to to support and maybe even create innovation. I love those ideas, but how much have I actually done them? So people will get lost in those ideas. And then in the case in this in the in the story, there's a, an extra little problem he has to deal with because this person, uh, miles, this person is not pleasant and they have a little shared history of not getting along when they were younger in college together. and the role will require working with that person and taming that beast. And he rightly uh, thinks, I, I, I don't know, maybe I could be, maybe I could be good enough. And yet this guy could take the whole effort for me. Do I want to put up with that? Now, on the one hand, that's a risk. On the other hand, if I say no, when are they going to ask me again? So he feels a real, a real tension about whether to do it and take that risk. And he needs a little help thinking about it. One other thing, Todd, that I wanted to just highlight, because I see a lot on you, as a college professor, I've experienced this as well. One of the gauntlets I throw down to my students often is, who are you doing this for? Are you doing this for you? Is it really the career you want to go after? Do you want to climb this ladder? Because one of the worst things you've seen, it, as I've seen it later on, you see these executives miserable in their careers in which they're apparently very successful and they've climbed a ladder and they've realized the ladder's against the wrong wall. And this is one of the themes I picked up from the book as well. Yeah, there's a, an issue. I've, I've given it a word that works for me over the years. It's fit. And 
It's hard to know where you fit until you try something. And when you try it, you might gain all kinds of knowledge. That's the most important about where you should be and what you're good at, what you're not good and so on. But you can't get that until you take the risk and go get involved in that thing, whether it's a new role, a new industry, uh, a new project team, an innovation team, whatever it might be. Uh, that is the conundrum. You want to grow? Good for you. Go take a risk because you won't learn squat if you don't do that. So when I talk to young uh, aspirational future leaders. I always tell them, it will not go as you think it will go. In moments, it will be way better. In other moments, more of these than you'd care to to, to realize, it's not going to go well. And people will question you in ways that will make you uncomfortable. And the key to leadership isn't being a genius. It is really learning to get okay with that reality so that you can actually learn better than others. That's where growth comes from. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people who think they're going to be promoted. And then everyone's going to throw roses at their feet. Hey, man, good job. What are we doing this week? You're wonderful. That's That never happens or almost never happens. And that's okay as long as you have the right goal and that ladder is sitting on the right wall. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. And well said. That, that's, for me, that fear, that's the fear of failure. It's the, what does this look like on my record? You, uh, you're, and by the way, Todd will maybe talk about this at the end. Prolific creator of content from LinkedIn, for LinkedIn learning as well. But people are worried about what will this look like on my LinkedIn profile? And this whole idea, but the, it really cripples people with fear is like, what will they say? <laughs> this magic day that's out there as well. So with that, let's tee up the story because Noah and Maria, these two main protagonists in the story, the main one is Noah and his, his wife or girlfriend, Maria, and they went to college together. And Maria reminds Noah, hey, do you remember that story that our old college professor used to tell? The story about a monster. Maybe you'll give us a synopsis of that story with some of the themes that appear time and time again throughout. Sure. So we've got this 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 cat who thinks he's pretty cool named Joe Vampire, and uh, you know comes from a comes from a good old successful vampire family. A lot of success doing the thing that monsters do, which is of course scare. And uh, his family's in the training biz. They expect him to be the the latest greatest. Excuse me, protege. And turns out he's finding the life of a practicing uh, monster more difficult than he could have imagined. And his early progress kind of stalled out and he's wondering what this is all about, what to do about it. And well, when that happens, uh, as happens in organizational life, when the performance falls off, people notice. So he gets a visit from, uh, <laughs> some people are going to get mad at me over the years for this, from a witch playing the role of a HR administrator type person. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he's told, yeah, we've noticed you're not doing the, uh, the butt kicking that, that you're supposed to be doing. And we'd like to talk to you about it. We've all had those perform not we, not all of us, but a lot of us have had those performance come to Jesus meetings where someone needs to explain how they're viewing us and how things maybe need to change and improve. He got one of those and they decided because they do see potential in him to maybe give him a task that would help a few others while also helping him. You, they tell Joe, are going to lead a team of others who are struggling in their own ways because I think you can do this and you're going to learn from this. And then he's introduced to this team of sad little misfit monsters, <laughs> a mummy and a werewolf and a zombie and a ghost. <laughs> I just took classics that I thought all of us could relate to. And I have to tell you, your comment about kids was beautiful. I've heard that from several readers 
The back end reads for simple reading for business people. The story itself, I've had plenty of people say, I can't wait to make my my 12-year-old, my teenager read this because it's so simple and it has good life lessons we all know are important that sometimes we're awkward and we don't talk about. It. And this story helps people talk about it, I think. So Joe's put in charge and he's not happy about it and he doesn't know what to do about it. He uh, is very fond of Ray-Bans. And so he's just trying to be cool as he looks at them and starts thinking, well, not productive or kind thoughts about them. <laughs> and then they start trying to go do what they all have to do, which is produce scares. And they're not good at it. And he's barking orders and doing things that are somewhat understandable, but not at all ideal or useful. And he elicits, long story short, not much from them. And that is a source of, of extra pain. Now, what is going on? I'm failing miserably at this thing that might save me. And he has an epiphany. And yes, by the way, you're probably wanting to ask this question. Uh, yes, the epiphany was kind of reflective of a similar thing that took place in my life when I was trying to figure out a career issue of my own 30 years ago. And now, if, you don't, if you're interested, I'll, I'll give you the 30-second version. I was trying to figure out whether to leave Ernst & Young and go get a PhD and become a professor. This was a big leap. I've now taken several leaps in my career that are risky, and, and some have worked, some haven't. This one worked, and I was scared to take the leap. And I was sitting in my loft in Atlanta where I lived at the time, and I was not happy. In fact, I was very emotional about it, and my mother called to catch up. She lived in another city. She called to catch up and asked me what was going on, and I just started pouring it out. Here's why I'm worried. I'm unhappy. I want to do this. There's risks. Uh, at one point, I started crying to my mom like a little kid and got it all out. And she just said to me, uh, what are you scared of? What are you really scared of? And I said, I, I, I don't I know. She said, you're single. You have no kids yet. So you fail. Well, I failed. You, you fa you're going to fail again. Why not go fail pursuing something you really, truly want to do? You know what? You're lucky, kid, because you kind of figured out something about yourself and your interests and what you want to do. It took me a lot longer in life to get honest about what I want to do than it did for you. Good for you. Of course you should try this. Who cares if you fail? What if you win? She said some version of that to me, and, and it was useful. Um, and I thought about that as I'm writing this, this book. we got Joe Vampire failing on this task he's been given, and he had been hiding something I'll leave the reader to go discover it, uh, future readers to discover it themselves. But his Ray-Bans weren't just because he's so cool. He was also hiding something about himself that bothered him, and he didn't want to share it. And after a bit of not being successful with the team, he brings it back together, apologizes for, for the way he was kind of uppity and the way he wasn't successful with his tactics. And he took responsibility for that and blamed himself and wanted to reboot it and do so a little more honestly, a little more positively, a little more team-like instead of just a boss dictating, and and he shows him the see that he shows the team the secret, and they are aghast eh, because they didn't see it coming, and and of course they also bonded immediately with a person being vulnerable, and authentic, and real, and that started a new conversation and a new sense of confidence started to build in the team, and the subsequent performance. Long story short, the subsequent performance came from a deeper passionate place inside of each one of them that they didn't quite know they had, but thanks to Joe kickstarting with a really bold move of vulnerability, kickstarting a new conversation, they all reached deeper than they knew they could and started to scare in ways they'd never done before using some skills they didn't know that they actually had. And at the end of the day, 
They were not successful in the exact way HR ladies said they, they need to be successful, but they were very successful in some unique, unexpected ways. And that got a lot of attention. And uh, like you, like we talked offline, you know, we don't want to tell the punchline to the final part of the book, but I, I got to tell you, Joe does get recognized as a person who did some great turnaround work and created some innovation that everyone should probably learn from in the uh, larger monster land. And he was offered an opportunity. And what he does with that is for the reader to go discover, but it's pretty cool ending. And, and frankly, the reader can kind of write it for themselves at some point, you know? Fantastic. Well done, man. And I just want to add as well, we recorded this the day after Thanksgiving and we had actually booked it for Thanksgiving. We forgot. <laughs> so Todd kindly has joined us on his holidays as well. So I want to just point that out. I'm going to pull out a few threads of the story and do a great job on the synopsis without giving it all away as well. But there was a couple of things that happened. And here for our listener, our viewer, we're talking about the workplace here rather than the characters. So one of the things that happens, Joe gets the job. He's put in place. He goes to this place first. His first thought is to tell them what to do and be quite didactic in his approach, authoritarian in his approach, etc. And then he remembers something that he had learned in his training academy, which was the importance of communication. And this is his first kind of aha moment in kind of going, oh, okay, this seems to be something really important to do with transformation efforts. Yeah, it's cool. Um, you know, I've had a whole career basically taking simple ideas that once you look at them sharply are pretty obvious, yet in practice are often forgotten. And then I find ways, whether it's a blog post, a book, or a speech, to get people to remember it, get focused on it, and embrace it because they tend to be very useful. So when I wrote those rules in the back, one was collaborate, don't dictate. I can't tell you over the years, and I know you've had similar experiences, that people who have the authority vested in them from their position will use it, not even unethically. They'll just use it, though, to, to make a decision and tell people what to do. That's not inherently evil. It's just not ideal. The ideal, of course, and it's only 30, 40 years, maybe, uh, I think the business world is slowly waking up to some of these realities. So when you look at the, the long history, uh, it's fairly new that these people issues are coming to be front and center to productivity and success at work. But when you're dealing with the team, you think about making decisions, all kinds of decisions, small and large, every day, and people need to have their voice heard, that word voice. Their input, their thoughts, their opinions matter. Now, people hear me say things like that, and they go, yeah, I know, but people are crazy. <laughs> I'm busy. I know more than they do. I know what he would choose, and I don't like that. Okay, some of those realities are real. I hear you. But on average, most of the time, you have to strive more than less to get people's voice heard. Here's why. Number one, it will help you, again, on average, make sounder decisions. Number two, no matter what decision you make, when people feel they've meaningfully had an opportunity to give voice on the issue, no matter what decision you make, they will absolutely follow you and execute and work hard in the face of the challenges that might be there more simply because they believe it's a valid and just decision that was made. That's some magical stuff, if you think about it. 
And you should think about it when you're resisting giving people more input. Now, every decision is, of course, not the same. Some decisions are very important and don't need team input because they're strategic and it's above your pay grade. I recognize that. That's a minority of the decisions a leader makes about strategy and compensation and what have you. And then there's the the, the decisions where you do want meaningful voice from employees, but you, the leader, are going to make the call, okay? But they need to be involved in collaborating. Then there's a ton of decisions that are smaller-ish. You might just want to give away authority on those and let people own them, let the team own them. When in doubt, give a little more, not a little less. It sounds so easy, but because we're so busy every day and have some imperfect thoughts about ourselves and others, we resist this wonderful practice. One of the things that comes out from that is, right, so he was probably a little bit insecure and that, and oftentimes that lack of a two-way communication system or a multi-way communication system throughout an organization, a connected one, a networked one, is because you don't actually want to know what's going on in the field or you don't want feedback about your own leadership style, et cetera, et cetera. That was one thing that came across. But then also that, I'm keep keeping to the organizational stuff here. I was reading because one of the things I do with each of the shows that I have is I try and release an article that's loosely connected in some way. And I was thinking about how the, a, a leader, when they're when they're either not trained or they're not a leader, what they tend to do is. They don't try and lead others. They try and block their progress because they've a fear of being maybe shown up in some way. And a great early guest that we had on the show was a guy called Jeffrey J. Fox. He, he wrote a brilliant book, actually, similar kind of fable about this paper boy called Rain. And he wrote all these books about rainmaking, etc. But ultimately, it's it's a fable. And I, I, I read that one to my kids. They absolutely loved it. But he had a killer line in one of his books. And he said, sevens hire fives nines higher tens and obviously talking about the you know if you're on a scale of one to ten the type of person and that came to mind as well in that if you if you are insecure in yourself you don't you'll kind of block the progress of others and you don't want to make them into heroes and this was one of the kind of things that dawns on the vampire here joe where he kind of goes actually i'm going to make them all into heroes i'm going to release their latent potential you know, it's fascinating that you'd say that. It's probably one of the most recurring things I've ever witnessed is that uh, people aren't always inherently wired to want to develop others into their best selves for fear of, by, by contrast, by comparison, looking somehow less than, which is human but not productive. And that's why people like you and me, we talk about these things to get people away from that. Here's what I like to tell people. You shouldn't be afraid of others stepping up and excelling because when you have a hand in their development, of course, others have to know about this, but when others know that you have a hand in their development, their success, that shines so well on you and helps you become better aligned with opportunities that you wouldn't have been aligned with before because developing others, every step you climb on that ladder becomes more important, not less important because the talent beneath you has to be optimized to the best of your ability. This is a great thing for you that they are killing it thanks to your help. So back to that bunch of people, right? The misfits, <laughs> the group of misfits. I often think about people who work in innovation are, I, I, I definitely, so the audience of this show, a lot of people work in innovation. We are all on somewhere similar on the spectrum, right? So I'm not, you know, we're, 
certainly in the same realm of neurodiversity. And I felt that this crew of misfits that Joe takes over were a crew of neurodiverse individuals and they were all dressed in different ways. They all stood out in different ways, etc. But because they don't fit the norm, the middle of the bell curve of what an organization is looking for and the cookie cutter approach to the, the type of employee we hire around here, it doesn't mean that they're broken and they were considered broken. But what they needed was a leader to come along and unleash that potential. And that seems to be a theme again in the fable. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They have to feel, you talk about innovation, you've got to talk about trust and comfort and psychological safety, all these related ideas. Where does that come from? Partially your personality. You might be predisposed to feeling okay taking risks, for example, more than others. Uh, but a great deal of it in social settings comes from those who have influence and power and how they make you feel. Now, that sounds a little touchy-feely for a whole lot of people. And I'll tell you what you already know so well. If you have people who are bright and not feeling comfortable, the collaboration won't happen, the risk-taking will get lip service at best, and innovation will be unimpressive. It's not the geniuses who innovate successfully. That happens, but it's rare. It's the people who, who are bright and trained, of course, but work well together, absolutely get past saying that learning from mistakes is a maxim I care about and engage it as a part of our professional lives. You know, some of the best innovative companies in the world have got all kinds of failure and mistake libraries of different types so that we'll never forget what it took to climb that mountain the first time because it's going to be the same next time. The, the most, I'm ranting here, friend, but the, one of the most depressing things for me is to see a company kill it over some number of years with a platform or product or whatever and then become the slightly too large bureaucratic thing that is no longer capable of doing the thing that got them there. Breaks my heart every time. Of course, you can break them up in different ways and re-energize, and we're part of that. But it's so sad to watch because there's so much potential. They just learn how to kill for the sake of efficiencies. <laughs> there's a book up by a guy called Lawrence Miller, and a brilliant video is available on YouTube. He's a future guest of the show. It's called From Barbarians to Bureaucrats. And he talks about as, as a business moves up the S-curve, it initially hires all these kind of innovators, these kind of heretics, and then it starts to get towards the bureaucrats. And it needs them, but it doesn't then keep them in the organization to keep that innovative spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit alive later on. So totally get you on that, man. And, and, we, and that's what we do. We crush the spirit of those that neurodiverse people, the people who think differently because they don't think, think like us. The reason I'm saying that, Todd, is I wanted to get to one of the things, again, I noticed. And, and you know the way when you go to school and you're, you're sitting your SATs over in the States and you have like an English essay or whatever and, or a poetry, you know, deciphering what you think a poem is about, you know. I'm sure you get this all the time where people are kind of going, yeah, what I thought was happening in the book was this. And you're like kind of going, yeah, sure, if you if you see it that way. So bear with me on this one. But one of the things I noticed was all those characters wore masks or, for example, big hoodies to cover themselves. Joe wore the sunglasses, etc. That That this idea of masking is something that is very, very true, unfortunately, in not just in the working world, but in schools, in society itself, people are afraid to be themselves and they feel by being the friend themselves, maybe they're going to be vulnerable. Maybe, maybe people aren't going to like who they truly are. And they feel like they just have to fit in 
And this is a huge pro like this is just exhausting to be wearing a mask. I mean, I, I love that about my job. I don't wear a mask. I don't, I used to, I used to, when I was in the kind of bureaucratic kind of Ernst and Young type environment where you felt you had to wear a mask to certain types of meetings and all those kind of things. But when you don't, man, you free up such potential energy that you can deploy elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's just a spot on correct. Uh, and, and it's very normal, by the way, just completely normal for humans to get into a social context and censor as a means of learning what matters, what are the norms, and as a means of pleasing people and meeting expectations that they believe. Um, that's not evil, but it can kill productivity. It absolutely reduces authenticity. People just present what's called impression management, right? We just try to be what we think is acceptable and or desired by a few people who have power over us or who I want to impress for some reason. <clears throat> that is completely normal. What I like to tell people is you're not broken for doing that. But what we know when we look at teams is that we do that so much that we never, <laughs> we never peek beyond those masks. We just can't stop thinking of ourselves as this label, that label, whatever identity is our mask. We can't stop thinking beyond it, and, and people want to want to make jokes. In fact, HR wants to make fun of an accountant guy. The accountant guy wants to make fun of the weirdos in marketing, et cetera, et cetera, because we're hiding behind those identity masks. Uh, per, on a personal level, we all have flaws, and for them, the characters in the book, this really made sense to me because I've got flaws. I'm a uh, 20 pounds overweight, uh, shaved my head because the hair was going thin 20 years ago. You know, I'm imperfect as can be like everyone else. That's not the question. The question is, how do you feel about it? What do you do with that? And what we know from basic psych and a lot of other related sciences is you can learn to understand that, think past it, laugh about it, leverage it sometimes. Me, my bald head's part of my marketing, what people know me for. My bald head and these glasses and the tattoos. And my dad said I'd never get work. Look at me now, dad. <laughs> so... They're each doing what I know readers have done many times, and they're just relying on something that is acceptable, that hides their flaws. And what I love to tell people is stop hiding them. You know, your flaws are, are strangely identifying and unique indicators about who you are. For many people who observe you, they're not even flaws. They're characteristics that you have. Stop assuming it's negative every time that you look at yourself in the mirror. I don't want to get too basic or too um, too full of a therapy kind of mindset here, but you, you have to learn to look in the mirror and be okay with it. Because I promise you this, that's only step one. But if you ever get past that step, you will then start to see others better, more clearly, more deeply, a little past their masks and relate to them in a way that helps them feel okay about taking the damn thing off once in a while. That's a team willing to have bold conversations. When you get educated people, you hire the smart people, everyone focuses on that. It's not a war. I've said this many times. It's not a war for talent. Everyone says that. It's not true. If you know what you're doing, you can go find talent. Sometimes you got to pay a lot, but you can find it. The war is for chemistry. People who understand, care about each other, trust, willing to take risks. That's the foundation of innovation. Bold conversations and a willingness to take bold orders from somebody who's leading the team. That's the foundation. Beautiful, man. You, you couldn't have teed me up better for the, the quote I pulled out because I pulled a quote from Joe and Joe says, here's what I fear. I fear not being as scary as my father and my grandfather. I worry that people will always judge me before they even know me. I fear not having the guts to be who I want to be before it's too late. Instead of focusing on how I could be a better monster, I always just sneered down my nose at others and expected people to be kind to me. 
It felt for a time like I was being a superstar, but now I wonder if I was just lucky to be born into a good situation. And I, I'm going to throw that one out to you as maybe to unlock a little bit about that. But also, and this links back to what you were saying, we wear masks sometimes because we have a perceived flaw of something perhaps that even happened in our youth, something that happened in our childhood, maybe a fear of public speaking, whatever it might be. But Joe had that too. When he was a kid, he had this failed leadership mission. So I, I've made this joke, and I'll upset some people listening to this, but I've made this joke with my uh, my ex-wife slash best friend uh, as we've raised our boys together. And we, we had enough means uh, and success to send them to any school we wanted to, and we always went with the public option because both of us went to the public option, and we did the research to finally conclude that that was, well, there's competing pros and cons of both those options, of course, but we liked the fact that intentionally inserting these children into diverse situations with some challenges, some real challenges, would actually make them more hardy, thoughtful people as adults. And so far, it's proving very, 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 very true. Um, Joe's problem is that he was born into a good situation, and, and, and it sounds like he was treated pretty well at some rich schools, if you will, some private schools, if you will, not, not bad-mouthing them at all. I'm just trying to make a point. And the point is that he never had to really question himself and think about uh, his real ability relative to a population in life he's going to have to go deal with forever. And when he got thrown into it, finally a working monster, well, it was harder than he thought. He didn't like it as much as he thought. He wasn't as good as he thought. And that surprised him and made him sad because the way he was raised did not prepare him to take on that type of reality. Because a lot of times in those better, uh, better expensive schools, uh, reality is the kids are shielded from reality in a lot of ways. There's pros to that as well, but I think the cons win, which is why I didn't make that choice, and I'm grateful for that. So Joe's sitting around wondering how he how he got there, and it's a common it's a it's a common reality for a lot of people. The quote unquote educated. I, I, there was a phenomenon off topic. I mean, there was a phenomenon years ago where MBAs were just production of MBAs in the states was just going crazy, and so companies were hiring more of them because they want to be out uh, on their fact sheet to say, look, we've got a bunch of MBAs. But then managing them became hilarious because a whole lot of them are young with little to no experience, and yet they felt like, Joe, I'm special, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> you're a human. Go do something interesting, and maybe I'll reconsider how I feel about you. And that's exactly where Joe finds himself. I love that, man. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's in the struggles that you build the muscle. And there's this, it's not far from you. You're in Texas, in Arizona. Well, it probably is, Miles. For From an Irish perspective on the map, it looks very close. <laughs> you can drive like the length of the country here in six hours, so you gotta, you got to take my context into account here. But in Arizona, there's this facility called Biosphere 2, and they kind of test like environmental aspects of what would happen in certain situations, etc. And they took these tr trees... And they wanted to see what would happen if we give trees the perfect environment to grow. And the trees grew really, really tall, really, really quickly. But then they all kind of collapsed. And they were like, what the heck's going on there? And they found out that if the tree doesn't experience the wind trotting around the place, if it doesn't kind of get battered by the conditions, it doesn't develop what's called stress wood. And the stress wood is what keeps the tree strong. And I always think about that with children, that they need some struggle. We all do, not just children. We all need struggle because, you, as you said about those organizations that, that 
grow out of their entrepreneurial spirit because they have recurring reliable revenue. They don't have to work as hard for that anymore. They have these customers that keep coming back and they lose their stress wood and they lose those people inside the organization who can actually give them real strength and real future opportunities as well. So anyway, that just came to mind. So well, well done for that brave decision with your, your kids as well, because it is a brave decision to do. But let, let's keep moving and, and I'll come back on to, to Joe because you mentioned there something about him. So he's this privileged kid. He's been given this leadership role. He realizes communication is a way to unlock them. But then, as is with any kind of strategic renewal or cultural renewal, there's a personal renewal. And he looks in the mirror and he kind of goes, you know what, I'm, I'm being fake here, I'm being inauthentic, and I need to be more sincere. And once he does that, the team just absolutely change. You know, I've met some uh, interesting people in my travels so far. I know you have as well. When you watch someone embrace the mental, uh, uh, kind of walk around that mental corner that Joe did and try this different, more honest, vulnerable uh, approach, they see the result. The result is a reaction they're not used to seeing, some reciprocity in vulnerability and authenticity that they're not used to seeing, and a burden slightly lifted because they're not managing impressions nearly as much. I think we all do it, period. But the the real effective people who are more vulnerable, more authentic, do it a lot less. They loved that feeling that they didn't know existed because they had been so distant, polished, dare I say, professional full time. And watching someone realize that is amazing. Now, if I'm being candid with you, watching someone realize that's a beautiful thing. But I've been accused of this over the years by, by students and stuff. Sometimes they then have a, a part two to that reality where they now uh, uh, don't feel good about the fact that a big chunk of their network, their immediate context, doesn't know that idea, doesn't get it, doesn't yet see what they've done with this meaningful transformation and maybe believe they won't like that at all. So I've done this. Maybe I've infected my team with this. That's cool. How do I, how do we fit into that larger thing? Can we do uh, some more, that's like a virus. Can we make more people infected? It's a fascinating question. I've had a lot of conversations with people about the risks involved in attempting to do that as people grow. I've seen it work. I've seen it fail. It's just, just like you. So I, I know that um, it's possible. I also know that sometimes, and it's done by uh, conversation. Everything starts with great, honest conversation. It's done by conversation and great work. You put the, the vibe of the team with great work. People listen to you a little more, take you a little more seriously. I've seen it fail. And sometimes it's because the culture really is past some point of no return and your little team's not going to move that mountain. That can happen. The question then is how much do you want to be in a place defined by that new mentality you're adopting. And that's where we, these things are all interrelated. That's where we get back to that issue of fit. Sometimes one of the bravest decisions you can ever make is to leave a situation that most observers think is awesome that you're in right now because of the pay, the prestige, the whatever, to go find a place, even if no one's ever heard of it, where you fit and you don't feel the need to struggle or manage impressions nearly as much. And those little misfits in the book found that for the first time with Joe because of his willingness to be so so open. So I, I love I love that idea, but people struggle big time with how to make that happen beyond beyond themselves. Man, perfect, perfect, perfect. Because 
one of the reasons I timed this interview for now is to release it around Christmas time because many people have these thoughts at Christmas time and they're crippled by the fear of making a decision. They're in a job they don't like. They're stuck. They're not making progress. They're wearing a mask. All those type of things. And I'm going to pull down a couple of threads of the characters because there's a character called Wolfie, obviously a werewolf. And Wolfie says, these are little quotes from the book. Wolfie says quietly in, at one stage, I guess I'm afraid of never transforming, right? So well, so she's crippled by fear. And then there's another, speaking of virus, there's another zombie called Zed. And Zed is has a crutch. And what transpires is, Zed is constantly blaming everybody else, constantly making excuses. And these are his crutches. He leans on these excuses as the reason why he can't transform or he can't scare or he can't produce. And I was telling you off air, one of my first books I ever read was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I read it over and over and over and over and I just kind of programmed myself. And one of the things he talked about in that book was always question what he called your alibis. And it really stuck with me. It was one of those things that anytime I fall off my horse and, and don't, as you said, I try something, it doesn't work out the way I had planned, I don't make an excuse for it. Or anytime my wife gives out to me <laughs> or something, I used to be defensive. I was terribly defensive for a very long time. I question my alibis now. I kind of go, okay, where in that incident did I actually fall from the horse and et cetera, et cetera. And I say that to say, that's a huge blocker for many of us when it comes to transformation, including what you're saying there about like, what if I change and I outgrow all my friends and my family, et cetera? What if then? And, you know, one of the things that comes out from an innovation perspective is what if you don't and you live the rest of your life regretting everything? Look, we're all going to get old, okay? Uh, a lot of people are trying to change that these days, but I'm pretty sure we're all going to get old. <laughs> and you have a choice uh, to be simple. Uh, you have a choice when you're 70, whatever it is, when you really are done being a professional, you can look back and you can be this type of person who says, you know what? I avoided uh, all major failures. I really, I really didn't uh, get in hot water, look bad in the eyes of others. I kind of, I kind of got along to get along and, and, and I, and I made it, didn't I? Or there's nothing wrong. It's not, it's not, that's not evil people. There's most people are in that camp. Then there's the other fictional person who's old looking back and he says, or she says, or whatever, look, um, I tried everything I wanted to try, or almost all of it. Sometimes I hit home runs. I got four or five I am pretty proud of. And there's another 20 that were embarrassing and, and helped me learn and grow, but but hurt. They hurt too. But that's okay, because, man, I, I really feel like I used my time the way I wanted to and effectively overall and killed a lot of the question marks I had in front of me through my actions. Those are two very different ways of looking back. And I can't tell you which one you want to be or should be. I can tell you which one I am. I failed more than I've been successful. I want to be the second person. And blame is one of the biggest things that will stop you from becoming that type of person. Um, I used to talk a lot about uh, blame as an acronym, B-L-A-M-E. Um, see if I can remember this. I had a I had an acceptable PG version. PG using the, the movie rating, and, and I rated our version. Something tells me I can share both here. Uh, the PG version was a fairly meaningful, uh, almost uh, barely useful, almost meaningful excuse, something like that. Like BL fair. Anyhow, the, the other one was uh, bullshit, lame ass, meaningless excuse. 
which I just found a funny way to make people think about the concept and those little mental tricks help, help it stick, of course, in their brains. Uh, but it's true. And when you study humans and you study any amount of psychology, what you find out, and this really tweaks people when they first realize it, and you explained wonderfully the transformation on one issue you went through, which is just brilliant, because it's useful for every human to find their simple version of that. How we perceive ourselves, how we perceive an issue, here it comes, ready, is different than how others perceive us and the issues that together we're looking at. Just getting your head around that seemingly simple idea will determine a great deal of your fate. Now, I don't want to encourage people to get lost questioning themselves. I don't want to create neurotic, slow, unproductive people. But most people, I mean, almost all people, err hard in affirming positive views of themselves, assumptions that help them be a good in their mind, such as, yes, I know I was right in that situation and my, my wife was wrong. That is simple thinking. And even here's the, the kicker, even if you're right, which sometimes maybe you are, even if you're right, assuming that and, 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 and really claiming that and talking about that and throwing it in others' faces is going to do nothing but harm to the, to the relationship or to the team. There's so many parallels between relationships and teammates at work. It's unbelievable. So, man, I'm glad you, you picked that part up because I think it's so human to be like, I call him Z, you call him Z to be that that crutch. Now, I hope you didn't laugh at how obvious the you know the the choice was to actually give him a crutch. Uh, for those who haven't read the book, he lost a foot and he has trouble and he needs a crutch to walk around as well. Uh, but it's also meaningfully symbolic of how he tends to look at, at everything and blame everyone except himself for the place that he finds himself at. And I, I, I thought that idea, and then I thought that reflects darn near everyone I've ever known, including myself, of course, that guy needs to be in the story. I have a saying that kind of helps me remind me of this is, and, and it, it's so true for innovation as well. The whole idea of blaming the organization, oh, they're dinosaurs, they don't get it, they'll never update themselves, etc. Because I think we do that a lot in innovation roles and in change roles and transformation roles. We point the finger and when you point the finger, there's three pointing back to yourself. And I think they're the ones you need to begin with is, it, it, it's, it's a symbol for me of empathy to go, what am I doing that's causing that resistance? And have I done my hard work of meeting that person, kind of understanding their resistance before the big meeting, instead of getting to the meeting where I'm presenting this big idea for the future of the organization, and they all reject it. And I kind of go, well, did I describe it right? Did I understand their concerns? And their concerns may be really valid. And I think that's one of the, un it's, it's, overlooked a lot when it comes to innovation this empathy aspect and empathy is a huge part of this book it definitely is so you've heard many many people say versions of this you know when you see people every day you should be kind to them because you never know the struggles that they're facing that is so profoundly true it's unbelievable uh you, you just don't know i'll tell you a story if you do if you're an educator uh, of a sort like we are uh and and you're any good at it, over time, you're going to get feedback that you put in your pocket and use because it's just, it motivates you or it makes you feel good for what you do. And maybe can, I've written about this one, a short version of it. Uh, a woman was a, a senior nurse at a hospital and she was in an MBA course I was teaching. And we were talking about empathy and related ideas and how you don't know what that person walking by is actually thinking and feeling and what's going on in their life. So stop assuming that and be a little kind. It's just an unbelievably simple, useful place to put your brain when you see people. And she liked that conversation. And she, she told me a year or two later after she was long gone, 
that she went to work uh, in the days following that conversation in that course. And she remembered for, for months seeing this one particular uh, patient several days a week for appointments coming through the hospital. And they passed each other. Their paths crossed on a regular basis for, for several months. And she never said anything to him. It wasn't her patient. She just knew him, kind of. Hey, how you doing? And, and and she never said anything to him. And, and one day, uh, she was walking, and there, here comes this person, and he just looked glum, uh, off. And she never spoke to him. And then she saw this little kind of off, and she said, I wonder how this person is doing. And she went, first time ever, because empathy matters. People need a little kindness. People are facing challenges. And so she said, hey, good morning. How you doing? You okay? Because this guy just looked off. He couldn't quite speak. He needed to sit down. He was starting to have a, a heart attack. And she got help for the man and saved his life. And she wrote this note to me telling me a, a more detailed version of the story. And she said to me, uh, I didn't save his life, uh, Dr. Tewitt. You did. And I'm almost crying now telling you the story because it was so touching that when you see that you can have leaders do it, educators do it, when you see that you can have an impact on somebody in a real way, it's what changes us from people who who give advice to people who believe the advice that we're giving. You know what I mean? I think that, you know, that Tiananmen Square, the guy that stands up at a tank, I, I think that has such a profound impact on the world, but also people think that that's what that means. You know, one person can make a difference, but it's it's not. It's what you did there. It's what she did there. It's it's hopefully, as you say, what we do with the work. It's one of the reasons I do the ed- the teaching is teaching is hard. Like I, I find teaching like it's a tough gig. Correcting the essays especially is always tough. But if you can impact someone in a tiny way that they have a better life as a result of in meeting you, like that's an amazing thing to do. And and also that also goes to me for being a father, being a husband, being a friend, whatever, is that you can say something to somebody to change the course of their reality. You know what? Quantum reality that they choose a different path that brings them to a different way. So that's you know, and, and that's part of this book as well, I have to say. I, I thought we'd finish with one last thing, because there's loads. I had loads more, which is kind of deceptive because it's such a short book, but there's so much wisdom packed into that as as you can see for those who have you watched us or listened to us. But one of the things Joe constantly worries about it goes back to something we touched on earlier is how his family views him what will the proverbial they think and he worries about how strangers will view him how his employees will view him etc cetera, etc cetera. and again this cripples leaders potential leaders within your organizations he keeps them as fives instead of elevate them to be nines or tens and there's a quote by marcus aurelius in meditations he said the tranquility that comes when you stop caring what they say or think or do absolutely releases this new energy within you and i thought maybe you'll say something about that because again you've been through this yourself you've gone through your own transformation you clearly have seen it in others hence writing this book as well maybe you'll share a final thought on that sure it's one of those again ever-present issues in human life uh we have people we don't want to disappoint um i used to argue i mentioned something wonderful about my ex slash bestie um and then she always admired and, and hated about me is that I didn't care what other people thought about me. And I still, I still really don't. And uh, I got that by genetics, but I love to tell people, even if you weren't born with that predisposition, it's an idea that you can 
understand, you can think about, you can build some skill around and move in the right direction towards it as a decision maker in your life. That's the truth about almost anything you want to talk about in terms of skills that create performance. You're born with what you're born with, but you can build a lot more. And um, what's the worst thing that happens if someone doesn't like you, uh, someone doesn't uh, appreciate something you've done? Well, they might judge you. They might say things to you. They might affect whether or not an opportunity comes your way. Yes, that's true. So what? You have to be willing to be happily imperfect in the eyes of, of others, because if you don't, then you only make the moves that you know will be approved. You're leaving so much of your personal untapped potential on the table that it is horrible. It's shocking. You can't do that. So I'd like to remind people that uh, I practice what I preach, not always, but usually. And I've done this. So for example, first time I got an ear pierced when I was uh, 18, dad wouldn't talk to me for two weeks. First time I got a tattoo, dad didn't speak to me for a month. <laughs> I quit and gave up a basketball scholarship playing college, small, small school ball. Uh, because I wanted to go become expressive and explore academia, and it worked very well for me. Dad was so... You just gave up free college? These are just examples. Lots of details could explain those stories better. But the point is, I really, not from being lazy or misguided, but I really wanted to go explore certain things in my life as my growth as a human. And I wasn't going to let my dad possibly looking at me like a bum who's making bad decisions. I wasn't going to let that possibility stop me. And you know what happened with me? And I think it can happen for most people if they work really hard. I went and created an, un, a new chapter that he initially hadn't, uh, you know, proved of, did very, very well and made him proud. And then me, by doing that, took this older guy who unfortunately is long gone now, my dad, and changed him a little bit in his last decade to how he looked at the youngins in the world and the issues in the world uh, because he saw me look in a way that didn't make sense, make a few decisions to him that didn't make sense, and yet become really productive, uh, if not lauded, in a few different ways. And that, that affected him as well. So doing what you really want to do isn't just about you. You're having positive impacts on others as well. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. And that's the message. And that's exactly what happens in organizations as well. You have people who are willing to take, to go off the, the well-worn path. And if you do the work like you've done, it works out. And speaking of doing the work, where can people find that work? Because you're a prolific writer, you're a prolific creator of content for LinkedIn learning, for example. Where else can people find you? Well, very kind. Those are the, the places I always tell them to go first and foremost. LinkedIn. I'd love to connect if people want to chat about these topics. Uh, LinkedIn learning. Lots of courses. I think I have 40 plus courses right now on these types of issues. Um, just Amazon or wherever you buy books, you'll find Dancing with Monsters. Did you say your website? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, aside from LinkedIn, which has become my, my home, I do have a website with a lot of more information and video and such, and that's drdoit.com, D-R-D-E-W-E-T-T.com. Author of Dancing with Monsters, Dr. Todd DeWitt, thank you for joining us. My pleasure.